Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders Podcast, Episode 31. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be chatting with the one and only Matt Bromley about some cutting-edge intel coming out of the Lima Charlie Community Slack channel. Hey, Matt, how are things going? Going really well, man. Finally back home after, uh, I guess we can call it late spring break in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We were just down in San Francisco for B-Sides and RSA. A huge thank you to everyone involved, volunteers, sponsors, attendees. What a great couple of events, which were made greater by all the people involved. Absolutely, man. I got to say, it was a, um, a really, really cool thing. I've been to different B-Sides events before. Uh, I've been to RSA before, and I was glad to see it start to come back to maybe what it was before, maybe pre-COVID. I don't know if it's exactly there numbers-wise. I didn't see any statistics or anything, but it was still great to see lots of folks out there, lots of people in every single space. Uh, we ourselves were in the early stage expo, and it was great to see a lot of other organizations, a lot of friends out there as well. And then the main expo floors were just full of all sorts of companies doing amazing things. So it was really, really cool to be out there. Yeah, this was actually my first RSA and my first B-Sides in San Francisco. We bootstrapped Lima Charlie in 2018, and by the time we were ready to get out there and do the conference thing, COVID landed and we got locked up for a couple of years. It's just in the last 12 months we've really been able to get out there, and it's been a lot of fun. Agreed. I have been to a few conferences myself representing Lima Charlie's in the past uh, less than a year that I've been here, and it's been fantastic. It's been great to get out there and see the word and then talk to folks as well about what we're doing and some of the other ways that we can help them out. So it's great to be out there. Thanks for uh, thanks to everyone who's had a chance to come and join us as well. Awesome. Yeah, definitely a very cool experience, and I'm looking forward to going back next year with a bigger presence. Good stuff. All right, well, with that said, I wanted to offer one final thanks to the staff. And I think you may have remembered this as well, but to the staff, the vendors, the sponsors, and everyone who put those two events on for us, RSA and B-Side San Francisco, Absolute amazing effort. I do know that B-Side San Fran was like 1,400 people or something. I've never been to an information security conference in a movie theater. That was pretty cool. And then subsequently to go watch a movie later on, that was even even better. But it was still a really cool experience, but a huge thanks to everyone who helps put those on. And then also like down to the folks who, you know, walk around RSA and just make sure the trash cans are empty and everything like that. A, a really huge hat tip to the folks that make an event like that much more enjoyable. Yeah, it's absolute chaos, and it's amazing that they managed to make it work for everybody. All right, on to the intel. It's been a crazy couple of weeks, so let's get to it. The one that just won't go away, let's talk about the 3CX supply chain attack. At first, we thought this was just your run-of-the-mill supply chain attack, but Mandiant, who initially responded to the compromise, has come out and said the initial attack vector of 3CX's network was via malicious software downloaded from Trading Technologies' website. This is the first time Mandiant says it has seen a software supply chain attack lead to another software supply chain attack. Is this malware inception? <laughs> it feels a little bit like it, right? Where it's just kind of a, well, how, you know, how did that software supply chain get attacked? It's funny. I remember when we first talked about the 3CX breach when it first happened, when the compromise first occurred. I remember doing some research at the time across Twitter and LinkedIn and everything. Research, I say, I was just reading people's thoughts, if you will. And there was plenty of people who were like, you know, 3CX is not the next solar wind. Stop calling it that. And Chris, I remember you and I were kind of talking about supply chain attacks in general. But I have to give it to those folks. You're right. This is not the same old solar winds. This is even worse uh, in some cases. As Mandiant called out, 
the uh, so this was a software supply chain software supply chain attack. So 3CX used a piece of software from Trading Technologies. Trading Technologies uh, is what came down as what was infected and initially infected 3CX desktop app and then was let me back up. Trading Technologies is what was used to then impact 3CX, which was then used to impact their subsequent clients as well. One other thing that's come up is since, and I'm reading off the Mandiant blog post here, which the most recent date was a couple of weeks ago. But since then, I think, Chris, when we first talked about this, I don't know if we had attribution, but Mandiant has attributed this to UNC4736, a suspected North Korean nexus cluster of activity. So we've got a little bit of attribution in there. We've got supply chain on supply chain. And I'll just make a comment as well. I don't know the exact background of how the threat actor got to where they got to. However, interestingly enough, you know, I think the compromise of trading technologies goes back to February 2022. So that would give us a little more than a year between maybe initial compromise of supply chain vendor one all the way to blog posts and, and release of supply chain vendor two. And in that year time, there's a possibility for so much additional damage because you got to remember every vendor, every piece of that supply chain is likely linked with other vendors and other targets as well. So whereas we know about the ultimate goal, or should I say maybe one of the ultimate victims, which was 3CX, we have to think that this could be a much wider spread issue as well, very similar to what we saw with SolarWinds. So I would Go out on a on a limb and say that this is probably something that's going to be with us for a little while. And yeah, you're right. This is this might be the one that just won't die. Yeah, I think as general security practices tighten up, we're going to see more advanced threat actors taking these circuitous routes into organizations. Like if all the first degree supply chain suppliers for an organization have great security practices and pass their sort of um, vetting process, they can go one step deeper and find the weak link and work their way towards their target. I could almost see this new kind of attack uh, spawning a whole new class of tools just to make sure those supply chains are secured. Oh, I'm sure. Well, I will say, Chris, seeing as we just came off the RSA train, I will say there was plenty of supply chain discussion at RSA as well. Yeah, there sure was. Um, okay, here's one for the reap what you sow files, uh, some of my favorite. Israeli spyware vendor Quadream, Q-U-A-D-R-E-A-M, has allegedly fired all of its staff and is shutting down its operations in the coming days, less than a week after its hacking toolset was exposed by Citizen Lab and Microsoft. For those that may not know, Quadream is a company that specializes in offensive tools designed specifically for hacking Apple products. It's a private sector offensive actor that markets end-to-end hacking tools to use by its customers to run their targeted cyber operations. Their tools have been used against journalists, political opposition figures, and NGO workers across North America, Asia, Europe, and the Middle East. Basically, they sold powerful spying technology to anyone who had the money to pay. Can we really believe that these folks are going to pack it in and go get regular jobs? Or is it more likely they will spin up under a different name over the coming months? Yeah, so I think you and I have talked about this before. You ask an interesting question, which is, you know, if a, a, a vendor shuts down and all that talent is fired or let go, you know, what does that talent go do, right? I don't, I don't think they kind of fit right off into the sunset and, and call it done. I think like most other instances, you'll start to see talent like that probably show up at other places. And again, without knowing kind of what that job market looks like, I wouldn't be surprised if friends at other types of similar companies, things like, you know, NSO or Candiru or Candiru, I think it's called, 
if you, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, friends of those types of companies reach out and are like, hey, I heard you just lost your job. Guess what? I need someone who writes Apple exploits or something like that. So I don't know. I don't think we'll see it fade away. I also wouldn't be surprised if, you know, the, the organization popped up in, a, in another form at some point in time. You know what I mean? You got to think there's a lot of money inside of that particular industry, inside of the uh, no-click Apple compromise, if you will, or the no-click Mac OS compromise. So there's a lot of money in that type of industry. And like I've said before, in many other cases, if you go fight a battle with revenue, you will likely lose. So shutting down a revenue stream does not mean the source of that revenue or the ability to generate that revenue is gone. And I I think we might see them popping up again. Again, it all comes down to who they know and what they're able to do. And then also, of course, one can also hope that perhaps maybe some arrest warrants will be issued by certain places, maybe, for that type of software. But I'm in agreement with you, Chris. I really don't lose any sleep over a, you know, offensive security company like that being shut down. But I do realize that those folks are probably still out there developing things. All right. The next one I got... Cisco Talos is reporting some state-sponsored campaigns targeting global infrastructure. There is a growing concern about the increase in the rate of high-sophistication attacks on network infrastructure. All the signals indicate that the attacks are state-sponsored and seem to be targeting routers and firewalls. There is definitely an espionage aspect to it, but also it looks like obvious targeting to support future destructive attacks. How serious is this? And are firewalls and routers less secure than a user endpoint? So this is an interesting concept because it's one of those kind of some of greatest fears things where if the network device that sits at the perimeter in front of all the stuff we're supposed to protect is itself vulnerable, does that mean the entire network and everything else is vulnerable? Now, this is, let me be very clear, this is not a new thing, right? I think the targeting and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to group a bunch of verbs together here, but I think the targeting, the harnessing, the exploiting, and then the holding on to positions in network infrastructure is something that's been going on for many, many years. And I will note, maybe we can find a link and share it in the show notes, but I'll, I do remember a while ago, there was it was discovered that essentially a, a large percentage of Cisco routers were backdoored on their way out the door or something like that. You know, it's certainly a thing that, that happens out there. And I think state nexus actors going after this just makes sense. They have a targeted interest in being involved in the organizations that have these types of infrastructure in place. So they're absolutely going to use it as an entry vector or as a way in. I think what it comes down to, and I looked through some of the the different observations that the uh, Talos group talked about, and they mentioned things like modifying memory, modification of configurations, installing malicious software, uh, creation of VPNs, capture of network traffic. I mean, all sorts of stuff, even in some cases using infrastructure to maintain C2 and things like that. I mean, this is, you know, inserting a network device in is just another step of the attack plan, if you will. I, I don't know if I'd call these more vulnerable or say that users are more at risk. I think everyone has to remember, and Chris and I, you and I have stressed this before as well. You're talking about a piece of hardware with a piece of software on it. There's inherently going to be vulnerabilities inside of that software and vendors do their best to quickly patch what they can when they can when they know about it unfortunately that doesn't mean patches always get applied 
So I think if anything, this just enforces a reason to focus on patching, to focus on, you know, implementing best practices and stuff and not just plugging in a device and forgetting about it, but actually maybe going through and and essentially protecting and treating your network infrastructure as another asset class that's got to be protected as well. Now, network infrastructure falls into a unique category. It's really hard to put an agent on there for, you know, in typical uh, monitoring fashion, if you will. And usually a lot of times the logs we get off of those devices are logs that pertain to their functionality, not to the device itself. That being said, if there are security options or ways to drop additional authentication in there or, you know, patching updates or some sort of software check or um, I'm trying to remember the software bill of SBOM or something like that, you know, if there's ways to go through and implement protections around some of these devices and some of the things I name might not even be applicable. But in other cases, you know, if I'm expecting my my routers or my network devices to have certain functionality or certain configurations in place, maybe I'll drop in audits to make sure that those things are there. The flip side of that or the flip side of this whole conundrum is these are very complex devices in the jobs that they do, but they're not the most complex devices in their inherent software meaning I don't have 50 million different applications to go through, all sorts of libraries and user activity and all this stuff to go through. I'm likely dealing with an operating system that is probably, you know, built and geared towards the functionality of the device itself. That gives me a chance to get in, to work my way through, okay, what is this thing supposed to do? What have I configured it to do? And does my configuration stray from anything that's there? So I look at it as basic configuration auditing as a way to get through this open ports, things I wouldn't expect to see. If Telnet is not allowed, then Telnet should not be enabled. Some of these are really easy yes, no's that we can just shut down from a network perspective, if you will. Now, that being said, obviously patching is the other one that I would highly recommend. Uh, If you can have the best network engineers and the best security folks in the world, but if the device is vulnerable, the device is vulnerable. So get those patches deployed as quick as you possibly can. And last but not least, if you do come across a compromised device, you know, initiate an incident response, use your internal team or get help or whatever and figure out just what the the breadth of that, the scope of what that intrusion might be. And I'm not advocating for anything here other than finding out and understanding as much as what may have happened. I'll be one of the first to say when when intrusions get investigated and findings get published, a lot of times that's when we discover things that we didn't know before. So as odd as it may sound, I'm also with the goal of protecting everyone who's got these devices. So let's treat them appropriately. Yeah, these devices must require more specialized knowledge to write exploits for. But given they get less attention than consumer facing stuff like operating systems, there's probably lots of exploits to be found. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. But remember, too, simple functionality. You know, if your job as a firewall is to simply read the software and determine whether a packet should be allowed in or not, you know, there's. Now, I will say, you know, you get to more advanced devices like next-gen firewalls and integrated products. You have a much wider technology breadth there to have to deal with. But simple front-end network-facing devices can oftentimes pose a big issue to an organization as if they're left unpatched. But patching usually solves a lot of these issues as well as with some good access management. All right. Cybel Research and Intelligence Labs, CRIL or CRIL recently discovered a Telegram channel advertising a new information-stealing malware called Atomic macOS Stealer, Amos. The malware is specifically designed to target macOS and can steal sensitive information from the victim's machine. The Atomic macOS Stealer can steal keychain passwords, complete system information, files from the desktop and documents folder, and even the macOS password. 
The Stealer is designed to target multiple browsers and can extract autofills, passwords, cookies, wallets, and credit card information, specifically targeting crypto wallets. We've talked about the rise of information stealers, and this seems to be another data point towards that trend. The threat actors also have a SaaS offering where they help you scale operations using this tool for a thousand bucks a month. The SaaS model for malware also seems to be another trend. And, and given that we've recently seen the ransomware proof of concept for macOS in the wild, are we seeing the birth of another trend where threat actors are starting to go after macOS in a real way? <laughs> Interestingly enough, uh, you're right. We have talked about information stealers before. The other thing I'll add to this is we're going to continue to see this, folks. We're going to continue to see macOS be a target for adversaries as the popularity and the usefulness of the operating system grows. Some would argue that we reached a tipping point of usability of macOS years ago, but I think that adversaries needed some time to catch up and whatnot. And it's funny, there has been this old security adage for a long time that Macs don't get malware and stuff. And, you know, luckily, I shouldn't say luckily, but I'll say unfortunately, adversaries are just proving that not to be true. Macs do get malware and there certainly is plenty of, you know, reasons to want to protect that, want to protect your system if you do have a Mac. In this case here, Amos is the uh, a information stealer. It's doing exactly you know what it's designed to do. It gets in there and it steals your passwords, your user information, uh, cookies, wallets. Crypto wallets are probably one of the most sought after targets for things like this. But files from the desktop and documents folder are also a really big one. Keychain passwords and then of course the macOS password itself. I will say one of the potential issues here for folks to be considerate of is that a lot of times Mac computers are linked directly to the Apple IDs online. Sometimes, and I've seen this and I hate when I see it, but I do see it. Sometimes folks even have the same passwords between the two. So it's a little bit more than just, you know, oh, I've stolen your passwords and whatnot. Now it's I have access to your Apple account and all sorts of things. And Lord knows we do not need adversaries looking through our notes to know what types of things we've been writing about. But uh, that being said, you know, I, I think this is going to be a continuing trend from a Mac perspective. And information stealers is another type of category or another category that gives you multiple assets you can work with from an adversarial perspective. It's one thing to say, hey, I stole, you know, a bunch of user logins and passwords. It's another one to be like, I've got people's Mac accounts. And then as you mentioned, it goes even further to say, well, I've got, you know, browser keys and passwords and cookies from there. And I've got crypto wallets. I stole documents and, and whatnot. So it just ups the ante. And speaking of upping the ante, the fact that uh, this organization has decided to offer this as a SaaS offering. Chris, I got to tell you, it hits a little close to home with uh, folks offering security services from a SaaS perspective. Scaling operations quickly and effectively feels a lot <laughs> like the types of words that you and I use quite frequently. Yeah. but. Nonetheless, uh, this is another trend that I think we're going to see. Look, it is lowering the barrier to entry for adversaries, unfortunately, but it's also an additional source of money. You know, it is one thing. And if you think about kind of that, you and I have talked about the economy of the underground malware market plenty of times now. But if you think about the basic transaction of, oh, well, I write a piece of malware, I sell it to someone. I mean, that's one way to make money. Right. But maybe the person I sell it to doesn't have the infrastructure they need to support it. So I offer them the infrastructure and then I sell that too. And then next thing you know, I've built out a complete SaaS offering of a piece of malware. And all I had to do was just take each part of that transaction and break it out like any good business would into 
something I could potentially charge for or get money for. And I wouldn't be surprised if you have resellers on top of that. Someone who's got access to this type of thing and is selling it to even more nefarious folks for a little premium on the top or something. So that being said, there's a lot of a lot of really unique situations out there. I don't think this is the end of Mac malware at all. I think we're going to continue to see Mac OS being targeted and information stealers are going to continue to be viable as long as we keep information on our systems, which will never go away. Yeah, I think another motivation for this uh, kind of SaaS offering, too, could be, uh, you know, the one step removal from the actual quote unquote crime. And once you start getting resellers involved in there, I think it kind of obfuscates the, the people that are bringing the very high value stuff to this. Well, that's the other nice part, too, right? The other nice part for the malware authors here, or should I say, sorry, the companies who are using the service, they are the front end. The people offering the SaaS service are kind of the back end. They, they might have an element of protection there. So yeah, you're 100% right. It is very, very possible that, that it's a, a good cover for their other illegitimate operations as well. All right. I think this is the last one we have time for today. Over the past several months, Sophos XOps has investigated multiple incidents where attackers attempted to disable EDR clients with a new defensive tool they've dubbed OKILL. A-U-K-I-L-L, the OKILL tool abuses outdated versions of the driver used by version 16.32 of the Microsoft Utility Process Explorer. They use this to disable EDR processes before deploying either a backdoor or ransomware on the target system. The threat actors abused a legitimate but out-of-date and exploitable driver. The technique is commonly referred to as bring-your-own-vulnerable-driver or BYOVD attack. Can you explain how this works? Yeah, so this is one I just actually read about very recently uh, as this came up. So this is an interesting approach here. Uh, first off, uh, hats off to the folks at Sophos. They did an amazing write-up of, of how this works. This is not as they admit the first time that we've seen this. Uh, they do mention some other articles where custom-built drivers had been used to disable EDR products and things like that. This one uh, is an abuse of a legitimate but out-of-date and exploitable driver, which is interesting. So one thing Sophos does is they do spend plenty of time talking about the different features and functionalities in Windows that should help mitigate types of attacks like this. Uh, so there's the driver signature enforcement that ensures kernel mode drivers have been signed. Uh, it's a way to kind of verify trust and things like that. So one of the ways to get around that is to get a driver signed by a trust certifi certificate or as we see in this case, abuse a legitimate commercial software driver to reach their goal. And in this case, the software, the legitimate software that's been abused is Process Explorer, which is a part of the Sys Internals team or Sys Internals software suite. Process Explorer is pretty straightforward. It is a, a you know, tool that you can use to get in and examine processes, dig deep into their threads and associated attributes and things like that. And what's happened here is I believe the adversaries have figured out a way that they could drop a executable copy of itself either to System32 or Temp, which, is, which then subsequently runs as a service as well. So interestingly enough, what, what happens here is you've got a couple of different drivers. You've got one called procexp.sys or procexp.sys. The legitimate one is procexp152.sys. And what's happening here, and I'm trying to find the version in my notes right here. Uh, let me see here. So what they're doing is taking advantage of version 16.32 of Process Explorer. 
And what you've got is a vulnerable driver that essentially has a weakness associated to it that then subsequently gets exploited. So both drivers are present, the illegitimate one and the legitimate one. Both get copied into the same path. Process Explorer runs. The driver then has the ability to receive a handle or a control code, an operating system instruction, which can then subsequently result in terminating a process. Now, what's happened here and what Sophos has commented is that by utilizing this essential malicious driver load, they're able to get to that point where they can kill a process, and they're using that to then subsequently kill EDR processes as well. So I think this is a really interesting technique to go through and essentially just evade defenses. And if you think about it, that's actually the ultimate goal of what's trying to happen here is Aukil is utilizing its driver abuse or it's abusing drivers from a previous version of Process Explorer to subsequently kill EDR. And then the adversaries pretty much have free reign to do what they want to do, assuming there's no other type of monitoring in place or anything like that. Uh, One other thing, it does have a persistence mechanism in it, or should I say an anti-persistence mechanism as well. Uh, Aukil actually starts several threads upon running to ensure that the processes are disabled and the service is disabled as well. Interestingly enough, if the service or process tries to come back up, Aukil disables and terminates it immediately. So we actually have a persistent anti-persistence in this case. And then, of course, once an adversary has the ability to get on a system and take advantage of a system without any sort of EDR telemetry or anything like that. They've got a free reign to run and kick off whatever processes they want and likely evade detection for a while. I will say there's plenty of reasons for multi-point telemetry and that kind of stuff here, but that's definitely not the focus of, of this particular examination. It's more of understanding some of the advanced techniques that adversaries have taken advantage of to uh, evade defenses and then, of course, you know, get whatever it is they want out of a system. For people writing detections, what kind of things can they do to detect when the security tools are turned off versus when someone closes their laptop? Yeah, so closing, this is a really good question, and it comes down to a technical perspective of what happens between one versus the other. A user kind of shutting down or closing their laptop or essentially, you know, in the same, in the same, at a high enough level, right, turning off security software. That will typically have uh, what's in probably very legacy terms, I'm going to call it a graceful process, a graceful shutdown, if you will. But that's going to have a series of steps. The operating system is going to close down services and close down open ports and go through its different shutdown procedures and close processes and, and basically close everything it needs to. But there's a code that says, yeah, this was a user requested shutdown. This is a shutdown event. So it's going to happen. What analysts should look for is a shutdown is going to be graceful. It's going to be expected. There's going to be logs around it. There's going to be a user intention, user activity, or a system call or whatever it was. There's going to be a buildup leading towards that. Killing a process or killing a thread, killing EDR is all of a sudden. It all of a sudden just happens. And of course, there's a lead up to it where malware gets installed, malware does its thing, and then malware kills the EDR process. There is a little bit of a lead up to it though. And that's an important thing for folks to understand. You know, I'll use Aukil as an example because that's what we're talking about here. Never in the history, and I've told this joke many times, especially about password stealers and things like that, never in the history of computers 
have the ones and zeros magically aligned to the point that a piece of malware like Awkill just shows up, runs, and does its thing, right? It's got to be placed on the system. It's got to be run. It likely, if I remember correctly, has to have some privileges associated with it and whatnot. Like there's all sorts of steps that have to happen before that EDR software is actually killed. So before that happens, there's different things that can be detected at that point. One of the big ones would be examining the different drivers and binaries that get pulled down onto the system. And I'm not talking about from a hashing perspective. Uh, one of the easiest ways, and Sophos calls this out, would actually be metadata of the driver itself shows the older version of Process Explorer. So it's little details like that. The other thing to look out for is it's also good to put alerts in place on your EDR platform for when sensors go offline somewhat unexpectedly if you will. So chaining events together, kind of like, you know, EDR turned off without shutdown or something like that are some good qualifiers to be like, okay, there's something here that we should look into. And I would go as far as to argue that your EDR software should not be spontaneously shutting down enough that this would cause a huge influx of alerts, number one. Number two, I'd go as far as to say if your EDR software is being shut down unexpectedly and it is not malicious, but maybe as process crash or something, you also want to know about that as well. So one of the easiest ways to identify things like this and then, of course, identify other issues, too, and it's the last step in detection, but it's still a good thing to have would be things like, you know, process kill, sensor offline, tampering and things like that. Great information. And before we go, I just want to mention a great report that was just put out by the National Cybersecurity Center, which is meant to help defenders understand selected malware threats in more technical depth and provide indicators and TTPs to support threat hunting or modeling. The report focuses on the technical details, components, and structure of malware samples. It's definitely worth checking out, and I will link the report in the show notes for anybody listening. And with that, Matt, thanks again for doing this with me. I really enjoy these conversations every week. Chris, it's always a pleasure uh, to see you both in person last week and virtually again. So take care. And to our listeners, we'll talk to you again next time. Yeah, take care, everybody. And that concludes episode 31 of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.